Hey everyone, it's good to see you today. I hope that if you haven't jumped in already on our new series, we're calling 40 Days Through the New Testament. We're just taking 40 days and working our way through reading the New Testament together cover to cover. Now, if this is your first time to NVC and you haven't had the chance to jump in with us, just jump in right where we are, take off running. If you are going to continue this week and you're keeping up, maybe you're a few days behind or whatever, don't get down. Just keep pushing on. This week, I'm going to be talking about what we're going to be reading next week. So this week, we get the Gospel of Luke and we get just a little taste of the Gospel of John. So I want to begin today by just walking you through a little bit about the Gospel of Luke, what's a little bit different about it. So the Gospel of Luke, first of all, a lot of people don't know this about Luke. It's the, actually the longest book in the New Testament in total word count. So as you read it, you may be going, man, it just seems like I'm reading a long time, but I'm not getting very far. It's because the chapters tend to be a little bit long. And that's partially because he is a doctor. Now, doctors, if you've ever talked to them before, can be very short or they can be very long. So Luke, in his case, he's very descriptive. He's interested in giving a nice orderly account of the life of Jesus. And it's written primarily to Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. So when Luke writes this down for us, he's directing it to someone he calls Theophilus, and that means lover of God, God lover. Uh, and you have this nice flavor that's a little bit different than the other Gospels. He was Paul's traveling mate, the Apostle Paul. And so he has some firsthand experience with taking the Gospel beyond uh, the shores of, the, of Israel to the rest of the world. So as far as emphases, you're going to notice he puts a pretty heavy emphasis on prayer. Uh, Jesus is always praying at almost every significant moment in his ministry. He is stopping to pray. Uh, the Holy Spirit makes a big, frequent number of appearances there in the Gospel of Luke. And he talks a lot about stewardship of money, about responsibilities that go with wealth, about the importance of generosity in the life of a believer and how our attitude and our heart shapes the way that we see money. So those are things, little flavors that kind of, uh, you know, really jump off the page. Luke gives us a couple of Jesus' best-known parables. You can only find them in the Gospel of Luke. I'm talking about the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. And then really, if you want to know what the unique piece of Luke is, it is the Gospel that really talks about what you might call the great reversal. What that means is the last become first. The rich are poor, the poor are rich. Uh, he highlights people who are highly unusual. Well, even in the parables I just gave you, um, the good Samaritan, right? The, the hero of the story is a Samaritan. It's not a Pharisee or a teacher of the law. There's this reversal of the way that the world typically saw things and the way that somebody who's just reading it would look at it and go, wow, that's, that's not the way I've always understood the world. And so he gives us this picture of Jesus who comes, you know, not for the perfectly healthy, but for the sick. He comes not just for those who can see, he comes for the blind. He doesn't just come for the rich, he comes for the poor. There's this reversal of order. So the poor become rich, the rich become poor. Things flip over, okay? So that great reversal taking place in the world, where the last are becoming first, the proud are being brought low, the humble are being exalted, that's what we talk about when we say the great reversal. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. And if you have a Bible or you want to get it out on the YouVersion Bible app, I hope that you will get it out and read this story. I want to set it up a little bit first. And if you're going to put a title on this particular story, you might call it, Who Let Her In? 
So here's what happens. Right before the story that we're going to read this morning, there's a lot of buzz about who Jesus might be. People were going out to Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who was out in the desert, and they were hearing him talk about this one who was to come. Many of them were receiving baptism at the hands of John the Baptist out there in the wilderness. And so there's this buzz about who John is, and John keeps pointing them to somebody who's still to come. He sends his uh, followers to find out if Jesus is really the one. And Jesus says, well, just tell him this. Tell him that the, the blind are seeing and the lame are walking. And just telling him about the great reversal, right? So when this thing is happening where the, the sick are now being made well, things of that nature, that's a sign that the kingdom of God is drawing near. But what ends up happening is the tax collectors, the sinners, they get it. And so they go and they are being baptized by John the Baptist while the Pharisees and teachers of the law reject it. So what happens is there's this there's tension between it seems like the sinners get it, the teachers don't, who Jesus is and his identity. One day, a Pharisee invites Jesus to come have dinner with him. Now, the way this worked in antiquity was anytime that a public figure was asked over, and that's what Jesus would have been considered back in those days, the door was kind of left open in that house so that people could come in and actually observe the meal. They could get a look at this person. You know, nowadays, if there's a celebrity in a restaurant, everybody tries to hide them and keep them away from the public. But in those days, it was actually very public. If somebody had a guest of honor or somebody who was a public figure, they would leave the door open. So at some point, a woman comes in, a woman of the city, a sinful woman, a uh, and I don't, you don't get the sense when they talk about it that they're saying uh, she had a problem with lying or something like that. You're, you, you can kind of read between the lines and tell what kind of woman she might have been. She comes in, she sees, she's probably initially standing on the edge of the room and then sees Jesus and they were reclining at the table. So picture some cushions maybe on the floor and Jesus laying lengthwise, okay? So he's not sitting in a chair. She's not crawling under the table in this story. She is going to where his feet are on the edge of the floor and she throws herself down at his feet. And she begins weeping. And she begins wiping her, his feet with her hair. And then she begins to pour very expensive perfume or ointment on his feet. Now at this point, the Pharisee is starting to get restless because for him, it's inappropriate of her to even be at the table much less for Jesus to allow a woman like this to be touching him in any way, shape, or form. And so he thinks to himself, I find this kind of amusing, he thinks to himself, if he was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and he would not let her touch him. Now, then it says Jesus answered. So he thinks it, but Jesus knows what he's thinking. So uh, Jesus knows what he's thinking, and the text says that he answers him, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says in chapter 7, verse 40, well, then say it, teacher. So here's what Jesus says. This is Luke 7, 41 to 50. Let's read it together. It says, then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears 
and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. If you want to underline something in your Bible, there it is right there. A person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here, picture the scene. You've got these two religious leaders, this Pharisee named Simon and Jesus. And they are suddenly, very abruptly, it seems, in the presence of a sinful woman. One of them has an understanding of righteousness that says, when a sinner comes into their presence, you are to withdraw, you're to pull away. Another says that righteousness means moving toward her, means offering forgiveness and a blessing of peace. Now, my heart, yours too probably, is for the woman. You want to go, boy, this is about how we treat outsiders. And that's true. There's certainly something to be learned, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But when you look at the context of it and what came right before, what we learn is that really this particular story teaches us a lot about the response to Jesus. It's the difference in the response to Jesus between the Pharisee and the woman, not just the response to the woman between Jesus and the Pharisee. The biggest, most primary lesson of this text is about the difference that Jesus is treated by this one who invited him to his house and this teacher of the law who claims to be righteous and this woman who's a sinner who kind of invades the gathering and throws herself down at the feet of Jesus. So here's the first statement. What is our response to Jesus? I want to start with this right here. Our welcome reflects our wow. Our welcome reflects our wow or our lack thereof. So Jesus points out, you know, when I came in, you didn't give me any olive oil for my head. You didn't help me wipe my feet. You didn't do anything. The most basic aspects of hospitality. I don't know what the current uh, analogy to that might be. It was like you didn't even unlock the door. You, you didn't even give me a place to park my car. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't even give me a hug or a handshake or anything when I walked in the door. You stayed on your couch. I had to find my way in. Uh, and then when I came in and said, hello, you said, hey, you're blocking the TV or something like that. So he juxtaposes, Jesus does, the difference in the hospitality of the Pharisee who should know better, right? And then the hospitality of the woman. So what he sees is the difference between the two is how they see Jesus. The reason the host of the party doesn't pay Jesus the privileges that a host normally would is because he doesn't seem to think that Jesus is a very big deal. Why do I think that? Because when the woman throws herself down at his feet, he thinks to himself, well, if he was really a prophet, he would do this. And just the fact that he didn't show him the most basic aspects of hospitality in the ancient world. Then contrast that with the woman, an unnamed woman. She isn't given a name. In fact, she doesn't even speak in the whole story. Okay? She takes this extremely costly perfume in an alabaster jar. If she uses nard, which most people think she does, then the cost would be somewhere around 300 denarii a pound. Okay, that's an average person's annual wage. That's what this stuff is worth. This is 
big money perfume. Forget Chanel, okay? Forget Calvin Klein. Forget any of that kind of stuff. This stuff is crazy. It was used to anoint the dead and to um, purify priests. You can read about it a little bit more in Exodus chapter 30, verses 25 to 30. So she comes in. So you, on the one hand, you got, hey, you're blocking the TV from the Pharisee. And on the other hand, you get her pouring out this extremely expensive perfume on his feet, wiping his feet, which are dirty because the Pharisee didn't give him anything to walk, clean his feet with, with her hair and, what, and her tears. So let me ask you this. Take a look at your life. Not your intentions, your life, okay? If somebody was going to look at your life, if we were reading like we're reading this story, if, we, if somebody read the story of your life right now at this point in time, what would they think of how you valued Jesus? Because we claim that we want Jesus to kind of be Lord of our house, right? We want Jesus to be Lord of our lives. Okay, great. Does the welcome with which we live on a daily basis, the things that we do to prepare our, our lives to welcome Jesus on a daily basis, does that show? Or is it more of a, hey, you're blocking the TV, get out of my way so I can get angry online or so I can panic about this or that? Or am I going about my life in a way that demonstrates that I value the presence of my Lord and Savior, meaning he gets the best, he gets the first, he gets that alabaster jar of ointment, whatever that is. Okay, do, do, I, do I value him the way that I ought to? If somebody were to come in from the outside and look at how we, I guess, welcomed Jesus in our home, would they think that we thought he was very important or would we think that he was just a guy? That's the question posed by the story, by looking at the Pharisee and his response and the woman and her response. Now, if we turn to their treatment of the woman, one of the next points is that the righteous, okay, move towards sinners, not away from them. The Pharisee seems to doubt Jesus' credentials as a prophet because he doesn't, Jesus doesn't recoil in horror when this woman touches his feet. Now, so you've got these two religious leaders suddenly in the presence of a sinful woman. They have two different understandings of what righteousness looks like. In the case of the Pharisee, he says, I'm righteous, she's not, so therefore I'm going to keep myself from being contaminated by her. Jesus takes the different approach, which is, I'm righteous, she's not, and so I'm going to make a move toward her to help her become righteous as well. We cannot claim to be righteous if we don't welcome the unrighteous. In the kingdom of God, grace is the foundation of philosophy. It is the currency of the economy in the kingdom of God. It is the absolute foundation of everything that we believe. It's the way of worship. A holy Christ welcoming unholy sinners like ourselves and doing it, doing it with his arms open, not his arms folded. See, those two different postures really make an enormous difference when people who are sinners are coming to know Jesus for the very first time. Do we present a Christ to them with his arms folded or his arms open? And do they find his church being one with arms open or arms folded? Okay. Third, we are very free borrowers typically, but we are ruthless lenders. Okay. Jesus tells another story in the um, 
scripture that I'll get to in just a second. But right here, what you see, Jesus' rationale for why she seems to be so lavish in how she treats Jesus versus him is that she's just been forgiven more. And typically, we borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow. I mean, you can see it in the way most people handle their finances. But if we're the lender, so to speak, then we tend to get really stingy. If somebody owes us five bucks, that's a big deal. If we owe the bank 5000 that's no big deal. So we tend to be free borrowers and ruthless lenders. Jesus tells a story called the parable of the unmerciful servant or the unforgiving servant in another part uh, of the Bible. You can find it in the Gospel of Matthew. But there you have a story told of a man who owes a tremendous debt who can never repay it, and he is forgiven of that debt. Later on, somebody comes and owes him money that's much smaller, and he has that man thrown into prison. Well, the master who had forgiven the enormous debt finds out what this man had done, and he has him taken and thrown into prison as a result because it angers him that after being forgiven so much, he would withhold you know, blessing or whatever, have this person thrown in jail for owing him so much less money after his huge debt was forgiven. See, the gospel is like a banker walking up to us when we can't pay our mortgage. And rather than foreclosing, they don't just say, hey, we'll defer the payment. They say, your debt is forgiven, which is a completely different thing. And then based on that, right, if, if, if your bank walked into you today and say, hey, your mortgage payment, guess what? We just wiped it out. And then somebody said, hey, I'm looking for a bank. What would you say? You'd say, I know just the guy. I know just the gal. I know just the place, right? That, that's the way the borrowing and lending of grace in Scripture becomes something like this. We have been forgiven a debt we could not pay. As a result of that, our ability to continue to hold others in debt to us, to resent them, to hold their sins against them, goes away. That ability to do that was nailed to the cross along with our sins. So what you see here is this woman who's pouring herself out for Jesus because she's been forgiven so much and she's aware of it. Okay. Now the funny part is, um, you know, our love for Jesus and our love for sinners tends to reflect our understanding of how much we've been forgiven. All right. Meaning how much it feels like we've been forgiven. That tends to determine how we treat sinners. The more aware I am of how lavish the forgiveness of God has been for me, the more lavish I am in extending that grace to others because I realize I didn't deserve it either. And so for me to extend grace to them is fine. So if you ever find somebody who stays in resentment toward another person, for instance, or holds uh, that person liable for, for things and refuses to forgive, the parable of the unforgiving servant would say, I'm sorry, that right's been taken away. As soon as you claim forgiveness of your own debts in the sight of God, God says, you, you don't get to hold that over somebody else. So this debt that we owe, we need to understand, is not determined by how we feel, how much I feel like I owe. Okay, It tends to reflect, the way that we treat sinners tends to reflect our understanding of how much we've been forgiven. But debt, in reality, is determined by the lender, not the borrower. It has nothing to do with what we feel like. It's a matter of how much we actually owe God, how much we've been forgiven by God who determines how much we owe Him. So when we say to ourselves, maybe in our mind, or even just through translation, okay, I don't, you know, maybe I don't feel like I owe that much, which seems to be kind of what the Pharisee 
feels. He sees himself as a, a little sinner. She's a big sinner. I'm a little sinner. Okay. <laughs> I want you to just think of your own personal finances, okay? Part of the reason that we tend to overspend and accrue more debt is because we don't feel like we actually owe that much money. And we just forget it, and we don't realize it's snowballing on, on us every single day. It might do us some good to spend some time reflecting on the fact that both in the story that Jesus tells us here in Luke 7 and the parable of the unforgiving servant, we're talking about an unpayable debt that was forgiven, that was forgiven by God because of his great mercy and Jesus, his existence, his, the very fact that he came and walked among us and died on the cross is evidence of God moving towards sinners, not away from them. The gospel says that each of us has been forgiven a debt that we couldn't pay. So let me just tell you this story. I remember we had Valentine's Day, my wife and I did many years ago. We had, back when our kids were very small, you're just trying to catch an hour of sleep wherever you can get it. And where we were living at the time, we were living at Texas, they had a, an enormous ice storm and it wiped out Valentine's Day. Nobody could drive anywhere. There were inches of ice on the road. Nobody could go anywhere. Well, husbands all over America went into panic uh, when this kind of a thing happens. And I try to do a good job at least once a year of letting my wife know how much I love her. So I just had to figure out how to make the best of it. So I went to work, man, and I got in the kitchen and I, got, I went through the closets and grabbed the candles and the tablecloth and the nice dishes and uh, the fondue pot. And I snuck out and bought some steak and I got some, some ingredients together. And I mean, I cooked it up. I mean, I cooked it up. I mean, spent half the day working on this stuff. It was amazing. And it probably was one of the better Valentine's Days we've ever had. It was incredible. And I did it because I loved her. I didn't want anything to get in the way of her getting that message on that occasion, even if there was an ice storm. I want to suggest to you that we're living in a similar time. We're living in a time in which a lot of the ways we normally show love to Jesus have been taken away from us for whatever reason, through circumstances. But it's at times like these that we go find a place, a different way, of showing Jesus how much we love him. And we do that this, like this woman did. We do it lavishly. So it doesn't have to be... Um, you know, taking her out to a fancy restaurant, proverbially speaking, like I was referring to, it could be something that we do in this era that reinvents the way that we show our affection and commitment to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who moved toward us when we were sinners. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That mantra, that becomes the, that which we live underneath. That gospel, that good news is what makes me get out of bed in the morning knowing that I've been forgiven much and it shapes the way that I see those around me. It shapes the way that I see my quote-unquote enemies. So I refuse to put my thermostat in their room and let them control the way that I think and feel, not just because it's toxic to me, but because God forbids it. Because God, when I had sinned against God, He opened His arms to me. He gave me the opportunity to come into that room. So while others might have been going, who let him in? I let him in. And at the party of God, at the great banquet of God, all sorts of, because of the great reversal of the kingdom of God, all sorts of people are getting in that maybe wouldn't get in otherwise.
So in this moment right now, when we're in this COVID era here, and when our, our country and the world is all turbulent all around us, maybe our ability to meet together isn't there right now, but our ability to do a lot of other things is. And so for now, for this moment, let's find ways to do that. Let's use our phones or our computers, our share buttons, give generously, pray lavishly, encourage each other daily. We can prepare ourselves for worshiping online. What I mean by that is, you know, don't, don't roll out of bed five minutes before and, and be brewing coffee and everything as the services start. Get up, prepare your heart, and let's connect together this morning and each day as we're online together. Take those opportunities. It's a, it's a small way of reinventing ways to, in creative ways, to, to show our love and our affection for Jesus. Then the question becomes, goes from who let her in to who will let her in. I'm always curious about what this woman's life was like after the fact. Was it something that she left from there and walked right into the local synagogue and was fine? Then probably not, if you base the Pharisees' treatment of her on that action. Did she show up in the early church? Was she part of the, the church nearby uh, once the church is born? I don't know, but setting the context of, uh, aside here, his go in peace when Jesus blesses her and sends her forth, it does add this question to my mind of, okay, where is she going to go? How does she live a life of purity after this? So once he forgives her sins, where does she go? Because the resources and the people that can help her live that kind of life may not welcome her in that world. So what it makes me do is speed forward to today and go, okay, when the question is asked, who will welcome her? Can I give her your name? Can, can I give my name? Can we put New Vintage Church welcomes her? And mean it. And mean it with arms wide open, not arms folded, not teeth clenched, she's welcome here, not that, but a welcome home, a real welcome, a real hospitality that now goes from her pouring out ointment on the feet of Christ in an environment that was hostile to her to us being able to serve with her and alongside her in an environment that welcomes people like her. This story blows me away. It's one of the great examples of the great reversal in Scripture. And I hope we'll let it shape as we read through this week. Notice these things in Luke, how these reversals happen over and over and over again. And that you and I will find new ways to renew in our minds that core gospel message that we have been forgiven much, much. And it doesn't matter if it feels like much to us. It's much to God. And it's a lot more much than we can imagine. And because of that, we wake up in the mornings welcoming Jesus in our homes every day. And we do everything that we can to show how much we appreciate him and love him. Because the ones who've been forgiven much, love much. And those who've been forgiven little, love little. 
As we turn our minds toward the communion table at this time, I want to take us back to that particular passage, verse 47, Luke 7, 47. That those who've been forgiven little love little. Well, we've been forgiven much, and we should love much. So as we gather, and I want to offer a word of prayer for us in just a moment, and as we gather around the table, let's remember that God's table is very big, <laughs> and it's got a lot of people around it that have been forgiven lots. And that's where we belong, that, because we're those who have been forgiven lots too, a lot more than we think of at any given point in time. But that table, we might look around that table and see people that we're a little surprised to see there. And that's okay, because it's not our table anyway, it's his. So as we do this morning, let's let the words of this text go on in our head, and let's be conscious of how much we've been forgiven by our Heavenly Father. And then let's go to the table of the Lord Taking the bread and the cup, the bread represents the body of Jesus given for us. The cup represents the blood of Jesus poured out for us. And as we do that, let's share this together. God, this morning, may we forgive much because we've been forgiven so much. May we who have been forgiven so much by you continue to forgive those around us. And Father, may our forgiveness in Christ continue to form the foundation for everything that we are so that, Lord, we don't walk around swaggering. We don't have our arms crossed in the face of sinners instead of open as they should be, Father, but that we welcome them, we move toward them, Father, as you move toward us in Jesus, who we remember now with bread and cup. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.